Yeah. All right, Chris, hit it. Okay. Hit the hit the hit the intro. <laughs> Got it. All right, guys. Well, uh, my name is Chris Messina, and this is the Tech Meme Ride Home Experience for Wednesday, May 26th, 2021. Um, we come here to discuss the latest and greatest tech news, to put a little context onto things, to understand them, and to go a little bit deeper in understanding what typically shows up either on techmeme.com or more specifically on Brian's podcast, the Tech Meme Ride Home. And today's show, um, we have two specific topics that we're going to get into. We've got some great guests uh, joining us today. Um, particularly, we're starting with the streaming wars. Now, this is something that we've been following and tracking for quite some time, but we really haven't uh, gone too deep in it. And obviously, there's been some big news um, on that front uh, in terms of this overall, I don't know, conflagration that seems to be heating up. And so, um, you know, Brian, if you want to intro Julia, um, that'd be great. Absolutely. Uh, Julia. Goddamn, I've needed to talk to you. <laughs> You're, I mean, uh, in terms of people, I, my job is to just tell people what's going on, but I only like listen to other people that actually know what's going on. And like, so I listen to you, and that's how I know what's going on. Um, uh, but first of all, Julia, where are you writing these days? You're at IGN? Yeah, so I am the senior string editor over at IGN, but just left um, Verge a few months ago where I was there for And And you have years. a newsletter that I'm a, a subscriber to, uh, Musings on the Mouse, which is mostly about Disney. Um, yes, so uh, look mm-hmm. that up. But um, Julia knows all of this shit, which, <laughs> which is why she's here. <laughs> um, Julia, can we start with... Today's news, there's so much, there's so much, because we wanted to have you on last week and it it didn't work out, but, um, so Amazon buying MGM, um, I'm, I'm assuming that the story here is that it's basically MGM is one of the last sort of, you know, free and in the wild, uh, content libraries and, and IP is the coin of the realm these days. So is that, is that the story here is that there's someone's, someone was going to take it. And, um, does it matter that Amazon versus other people? What's the story there? Yeah. I mean, it's a good, it's a great question. I think of the mergers and acquisitions space in uh, entertainment media right now, kind of as the cartoon of Wiley Coyote looking out over the cliff with a binocular, trying to figure out what's kind of left in a barren wasteland, um, which is one way of thinking about it. You know, MGM was on the selling block for a minute. They were trying to find a buyer. Um, they wanted a little bit more than what they got. They were reportedly looking for about $10 billion, and right. um, Amazon got it for eight point four five. And I think in part because when we talk about MGM specifically, the first franchise that comes to mind, to your point, exactly, Brian, is like people are buying this for IP and the first one that comes to mind is James Bond. But MGM doesn't actually own James Bond. The rights are extremely complicated. Um, They effectively have this kind of co-distribution situation, but it's actually owned by AM Productions and a family called the Broccoli family who uh, have a lot of... Yeah, so there's a lot of um, say exactly in how the films get distributed, what happens with spin-offs or ancillary type of um, films and TV shows. What Amazon specifically looked at MGM and said, okay, well, we're Amazon, we're worth a trillion dollars, like we can spend this kind of money. They view MGM and its library of thousands of thousands of movies and TV shows as a way to keep Amazon Prime 
video subscribers from leaving to increase engagement uh, and to possibly draw in more subscribers. Everything for Amazon is the prime game. And for them, having this kind of backlog makes a lot of sense, even if $8.45 billion is arguably a little bit more than what MGM is even worth, I think, in 2021. Yeah, it's not like it's funny because uh, MGM has been on the block for a while. So if if this was like you know prime meat, or if this was a Star Wars or a, or, or a Marvel or something, like someone would have snapped it up already. Um, does does that does that give you any pause in terms of like why Amazon took it and no one else did, or um, like because this was. What was it? It was owned by private equity, right? So, like, this was just sort of sitting there, sort of withering on the vine? Yeah, and I think there is a um, perfect kind of irony in MGM being acquired by Amazon, which is currently facing down a lawsuit over interest concerns. And MGM was one of the eight studios that in 1948 was actually part of a Department of Justice case that <laughs> sued a bunch of them for antitrust and vertical integration concerns. So it's kind of a beautiful irony happening there. I think what happened with MGM is they realized we don't want to be in the DTC market, uh, in the direct consumer market. We don't necessarily have the type of franchise power that Sony does to be what we many of us call content arms dealers, which is Sony can look at what they produce and talk to Sony, uh, excuse me, talk to Netflix, talk to Disney, talk to an Epic, which is owned by MGM, uh, and say, hey, we want to license to these movies, you're going to pay us a billion dollars, and you're going to get them for a certain amount of time over four years, and we're going to earn our revenue that way. So when they looked at what they had going for them, the best option was to sell to a, a company that was building a streaming service that needed a deep library. So if we look at our competitors in the space, Viacom CBS, which has Paramount Plus, massive library. NBC Universal, which has Peacock, massive library. Disney with ABC, and, and uh, of course, Fox and FX now massive library and so they don't necessarily need to license as much netflix which is building his live originals kind of needs it but the two biggest players are amazon and apple in this regard and i think part of the reason that they can look at mgm and say we're going to spend 8.45 billion dollars even if half of that goes to owning and excuse me not even owning figuring out some point some part of a of a bond scenario we pay four billion dollars for that we're trillion-dollar companies. We are okay with buying that because we don't have the time to be building our own original libraries as fast as we need to keep subscribers from leaving and to bring subscribers in. And so I think when you look at the potential deal for MGM and Amazon, it's really the only two companies that make sense. So uh, I w- we're, we're going to talk about all these other companies eventually. Uh, but uh, I, I said on the show today, I, I quoted Peter Kafka's analysis, which was basically that Amazon – you know, has been kind of dabbling in this streaming stuff for a while, and they've had niche hits and, uh, you know, popular shows, critically praised shows, but that's not enough. They, what they really want now are four quadrant shows to use the, the Hollywood term, <laughs> like thus, you know, Lord of the Rings, stuff like that. Um, is is this sort of like that sort of play where you can do you can you know the whoever the next bond is uh Amazon's going to decide who and and I I quoted the idea that there could be you know a a rocky metaverse or something like that um 
like, so is this a play towards getting broader and not being as niche? Yeah, that's a really great question. And, you know, what's really funny about that situation in particular is actually, as it stands, the Broccoli family would be the ones who get to control who the next Bond would be, as it stands. I mean, the nice thing about Amazon owning MGM is that Amazon has a lot of power, and they can go and have those conversations and say, hey, we want to pay you this much, and we're going to kind of retain ownership in a way that previously was not allowed. Um, who knows if that happens? Who knows how invested they are in having the ownership over Bond going forward versus having all of these potential IPs. I mean, they're walking away with Sansa Lambs and Rocky and Robocop and Legally Blonde and, you know, 12 Angry Men, so on and so forth. The biggest question about what they're, you know, I'm talking to a lot of friends about this in the industry, and we, we talk about, you know, how do you build a perfect franchise? And the common line is always, if everyone could build a Star Wars or a Marvel, everyone would have a Star Wars or a Marvel. And there's a very good reason that not everyone has it. Uh, and it just so happens that they're both at Disney right now. I think when we look at the concept of what makes a good franchise, as Matthew Ball talks about a lot, a great analyst who writes, um, highly recommends all the people on here don't. Um, this idea of We know love, Matthew Ball on the show, yes, go on. Yeah. This idea of love is very prominent, but even more so than love is this idea of obsessiveness, this idea that the IP of tomorrow is entirely reliant on two things, in my opinion. Like one, you have to have enough of a following that you can put out constant iterations of the product in different ways. So that could be TV shows. That could be comics or books. That could be movies, of course. But the other thing is, are your fans living in this world outside of it? Are they, are they actually talking about these movies and, and, and franchises? That's how you develop IP that people think about time and time again, because their attention span is split between movies and TV shows, but also TikTok and Fortnite and YouTube. And so to really make a lasting impact, you have to kind of be on their mind all the time. And when I look at MGM's library, and when I look at what their potential to make what Amazon could potentially do to make into a new franchise, you know, a poltergeist. I see a lot of potential remakes. I see a lot of potential well-done, de- decent, you know, box office revenue uh, remakes, but I don't see huge franchise potential. Now, for Amazon, the goal is to keep people subscribed. And if it does that, if the library is enough that people are like, oh, you know what, I'm going to spend some more time on Amazon, and while I'm here, I'm going to buy toilet paper, and then I'm going to go back to watching this other show then it works for them. They're pretty happy because they're increasing their engagement, which is great for advertising, and they're increasing their, their subscribers, and they're not losing anyone. The churn goes down. Win-win for that. That's different than what Disney kind of needs across its board. Um, so I think it's a complementary acquisition. I think it makes a lot of sense, and I think Amazon has the wealth to say, if this doesn't, we can write it off. It's not a big deal. But I, I don't think it's a bad decision at all. But I mean, I mean, bottom line is that there's just not a lot of libraries like this left. So, like, even if it wasn't, if it was overpaying or whatever, like, what are you going to do? There's not, there's not a lot of these things available to anyone right now. That's exactly. I mean, my ideal world, ideal world would be for Netflix to buy like a Viacom CBS. Like, my ideal world is where Netflix has its originals, for example, and then comes into this massive catalog that we already know via uh, Nielsen data and via other third-party data does really well on Netflix. And I, I bring up that example because when we look at Amazon and MGM, to your point exactly, that's the situation that we're in, where they know that they cannot – you know, it's really funny. I think about Ted Sarandos, who's the co-CEO of Netflix, saying all the time, we're going to build our own franchises. Like, Disney might have the Avengers, but we're going to build our own franchises. And then he realized pretty quickly building franchises is hard. Again, if everyone could have a Star Wars, they would have a Star Wars. And so while Netflix is doing a great job with its originals, 
the idea that they have, there's a reason they paid a billion dollars for Spider-Man eventually to be on its service and Jumanji and these other types of movies. And so to your point exactly, Brian, when you're Amazon and you're like, we can continue doing what we're doing, but guess what? Not as many people are as into Bosch as we had hoped or Man in the High Castle, which are great shows. You look at the movies and the TV shows, because MGM has a lot of TV shows as well, where you go, yeah, you know what? We would pay for that, and we don't worry about making that ourselves to keep attention. I think the bigger question now with MGM, as a content dealer itself, is whether or not MGM continues to make shows for Netflix and, and Hulu and other competitors, mm. or if Amazon goes, no, they can either go, no, we want to shut that down because we would rather have that, or Amazon can go, yeah, we don't really care about uh, an unscripted series, or we don't really care about this. We'd rather just make the money you would make regardless by um, distributing that out elsewhere. Okay, you're, you're 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 making me speed into the the other questions, which are which are like okay. So to get to what I want to get to, last week's news was Warner Media uh, being spun out, merging with Discovery. Um, I want to skip the whole idea of like uh, you know AT and T getting into the content business was one of the dumbest things ever. I'm going to skip that. Um, HBO Max. Mm-hmm. I, I I thought that they because I want to get to this idea of there are people in the lead and then there's all these other people that are going to play musical chairs um, and there's only so many chairs available. Um, HBO Max. I thought they were DOA uh, uh, when they launched. They launched late, um, but then when they did that day and date movie release thing, I kind of thought, oh god, this is their silver bullet. Um, and you know, I subscribe to get uh, Wonder Woman. I, I I can't wait for um, uh, uh, Dune. Um, but are they essentially the fact that th- th- they've done what they've done? Aside from the AT and T thing, mm-hmm. it's already. We're, we're, are we seeing that all of the the people at the kids table are going to have to scramble already at this point? Really great question. I was on the record, I think, or when people were first starting to call HMX DOA, which was like three months into HMX's launch, that I remember was on the record saying, I think HMX is one of the obvious great competitors. I think their library is a sort of combination of general interest and premium for a price that is not terrible. And I, I know it's a controversial statement because $15 is high, but... I thought HBO Max made a lot of sense then. I think HBO Max makes a lot of sense now. I think HBO Max, um, and I know I'm rushing ahead, but with Discovery makes even more sense. Here's what I'll say about, what I'll say about HBO Max. Uh, you know, my, the way I'm thinking about it is tomorrow exactly, uh, HBO Max turns one years old. And this idea of like, what have we learned from their first year is really hard to answer because I think they're entering a new first year. I think they've had the most chaotic first year of any streaming service that has ever launched. Um, I think they have upended industry practices that go back 30, 40 years in a, in a, in taking advantage of an unprecedented time to lean into unprecedented practices. And I think for all of the issues that Warner Media had under AT&T in the sense of direction with, uh, kind of leadership on the AT&T side, in my opinion, Jason Kyler has been really great at having a strong sense of vision for what he wants it to be. And, and I think it's worked. Um, he, he's what the we, discovery. He's the discovery guy. He's the Warner Media CEO. Oh, Warner Media. Sorry, it's kind of no, no. I, I often forget that. <laughs> but I not everyone sees names, so thank you for reminding me. Um, I think what HBO Max is, they have two major issues. One is their. It's not even that their price is high. It's their marketing upset price. 
HBO Max is only $1 more than Netflix's most common plan. And I, if you ask most people, HBO Max is the better offering than what Netflix can do because mm. it, it comes with HBO. You have Cartoon Network for your kids. You have Studio Ghibli. You're probably eventually going to have sports via the Turner Network. It's just a really good thing, but you, HBO Max and Warner Media don't necessarily have to get that point across. They're just stuck at $15 instead of saying, hey, this is better for your dollar. And the problem there is that Netflix is muscle memory. I use this saying a lot. No one thinks about opening Netflix. They just do. Um, in, the, in the same way you open up for many of us and search Twitter on our phones or Instagram or TikTok, whatever it may be, Netflix is that in the streaming world. And part of the issue that comes with being a competitor is now you have to get into somebody else's muscle memory. HBO Max can be there. They need to, one, lean harder on their IP. There's no reason that there should not be some form of an HBO, uh, excuse me, a Harry Potter show, aside from the quiz, already in development, already being figured <laughs> out, even with the pandemic. There's no reason that there should not be way more DC shows that are moving at a, a faster pace. They're losing out to Marvel. They're losing out to Netflix. Um, I don't think HBO Max is DOA, and I think HBO Max will end up being fine. And part of that, to get to the news of last week, is the biggest issue HBO Max has was that it was seen as a very big premium streaming service, not just a general entertainment streaming service. With Discovery, now you're going to have kids, news, eventually, premium, uh, kind of standard catalog of entertainment, and a bunch of unscripted reality that people really yes. love passive entertainment. And I, yes. think we, I think we play down the importance of passive entertainment. That is what you put on when you're working, when you're exercising, when you're going to sleep. And Discovery owns that market. I'm so I'm so glad you said that because this is the the underlying thing in my notes is I feel like no one seems to be focusing on Discovery Plus um, and and their focus on reality, but to me, like no one should sleep on that. That uh, I I think Discovery already had like 10 million signups or something, and they only started this year, right? Like I feel like if if what everyone talked about. You know, three years ago, which is you, you put Netflix on to watch The Office and watch Friends or whatever. Like you just put it on in the background for like your your comfort food or whatever. Like, um, like if Discovery owns um, reality television, like, like don't sleep on that. Like that could be very powerful, right? That's exactly it. I, I refer to this a lot as pop entertainment, and that tends to be seen as negative. But I think it's actually opposite. I was talking to a friend. He lives in the States, now lives in Brazil, watches a lot of Discovery. Uh, I, think, I, can't, I think he's on Discovery Plus. And I don't know if it's down there yet or if he's just watching a certain way. Uh, but I remember we were talking about it, and he's like, I just throw on Guy Fieri, like, all day. Like, it's just the only thing in our apartment is this is Guy Fieri. And at the end of the day, that's something that Discovery, via the ad-supported or via the subscription, can take back to their investors into analysts and say, like, people are watching us all the time, even if they're not actively watching us. We are what's being played at uh, bars when people are drinking it and they go back. We're what's being played at dental offices, mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. we still have an active fan base. People who actually really, I know I'm one of them. I love new house hunters. Like, that's my thing. And I, when I'm looking at services that I'm going to eventually cut, to your earlier question about seats at the table, I think on average the recent studies say between three and five entertainment streaming services that's on top of news and music and whatever else may be gaming. Um, there's the automatic two, and that's Netflix and Disney Plus. Disney Plus is a no-brainer for anyone with kids. It's just a huge portion of the population. Netflix is muscle memory. 
I think when you look at the other options, it's not necessarily Peacock and HBO Max and, and whatever. I think it's HBO Max and something like a Discovery Plus, or you can switch up Discovery Plus with a Crunchyroll or whatever it may be. It's a more niche, cheap service that people feel really good about having because they love those brands, they love those franchises, they love those kind of characters, and so they will just pay for it. Combine Discovery with Warner Media, and all of a sudden you've got a base in terms of audience uh, demand and market share of about 25%, which is just behind Disney. Like that's insane. Mm. Like that is that's that's hard. That goes from being an option to now being a necessity. And if you're a necessity for someone, which means you provide something for everyone, and you're everyone for and you're everything for someone. Then you're not going. The people aren't going to cancel. They'll subscribe. Their friends will subscribe, and then you can kind of start building, and your recurring revenue comes. And if you have low churn, you increase your prices, and you 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 uh, earn some more ARPU that way. Um, and think it's a really great deal. It makes a lot of sense. It is one of the few complimentary mergers that I'm like, yeah, you know, you don't think about it, and then the minute it's announced, it's like, right, that does make a lot of sense. Uh, one more for me, and then uh, I'll I'll let Chris get in here. Um, Mm-hmm. We, we we have to have consolidation now. Uh, this gets back to my idea of like mm-hmm. the musical chairs, and there's only only so many seats. Um, I think you've written about this recently in terms of like thinking about uh, <laughs> who's likely going to have to do what. But uh, am I wrong in 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 gaming this out that unless you're Netflix and unless you're Disney, mm-hmm. um, all options are on the table. That's a good way of thinking about it. Um, I have a piece coming out Friday uh, that basically touches upon this. I had pre-written it to the point that it literally at one point was like TKTK, more detailed on Amazon once the deal was announced. They've been reporting it for so long. Uh, and I was like, oh, just fill in the blanks on, on whatever that is to be. I think, you know, it's merger, speculation about mergers and acquisitions is always really useless but fun because it can go either way. Um, but it's really fun to do. It's like playing chess. And you get to kind of figure out what would make sense and what wouldn't. I think with me, it boils down to three primary uh, opportunities. One is complementary mergers that rely on franchise strength to create an undeniable product. So that's Warner Media and uh, Discovery. That's Amazon to an extent and MGM. There's the free, quote-unquote, bundling that strengthens the core product. So those are your aggregators. That is something like Verizon, AT&T, or T-Mobile. Well, I guess not AT&T, but Verizon, T-Mobile, partnering with Netflix, Spotify, The Athletic to kind of give people free service, which just means it's driving up engagement of 5G networks with wireless stuff, and that makes them really happy. Um, and then three is kind of these idea of totally new ventures outside of core business that drives bigger ecosystem. And that's the total acquisition. And we look at something like Netflix and Games, uh, which is was recently announced, like that makes a lot of sense, where if you're yes. Netflix and you're Reed Hastings after the last four years, you keep telling people your biggest competitor is Fortnite, eventually you kind of want to buy a Fortnite. Like you kind of want to say, well, why are we doing this? We have strong IP and we can make games and why don't we launch an Apple Arcade type thing? So maybe we buy a tiny studio, maybe we buy a tiny publisher and we go from there. And so I think when we look at the next wave of M&A, I think you can probably group it into one of those three categories for what we'll see happen. And again, and nothing, the fun stuff is nothing is off the table. You know, you could say Netflix could acquire Viacom CBS and my dream world. Disney could acquire something else. I mean, we, there was reports from CNBC last week that they either wanted Warner Media uh, at the time, Time Warner. Uh, all these things are still up in the air. And I think as certain companies really start to figure out what they're going to be, whether they're going to be a content arms dealer, whether they're going to be an actual true main streaming player, or whether they're wanting to figure out how they can make their way into that world, 
you'll start to see what makes a sense for a lot of them uh, a lot more, I think. Okay. So I'm finally going to jump in here um, because you brought up a couple things and I also have some, some broader questions. Um, and I also uh, want to just note that uh, Laura, who's joining us for the Tesla portion is also up here as a speaker. Um, she's from CNBC. And so uh, I've invited her to actually contribute to this conversation as well. Cause she's actually reported on this stuff um, in the past, but the, the, the question and the, the, the topics, I guess that I was curious while I was sort of like listening and just, you know, getting this amazing fire hose of, of, of knowledge um, about this space, um, I think is, is trying to understand a couple things about where MGM will sit, I guess, in the Amazon org. Um, you know, how does it report to, what does it report to? Like, it's sort of just, I, I think I just don't really have a concept of what MGM actually is relative to mm-hmm. it being a studio that produces, you know, movies, right? Like I can kind of encapsulate that in my brain, but like what modern studios are, like I think about like game um, makers like Bethesda or like, you know, what Microsoft mm-hmm. does uh, with their Xbox division. And I'm wondering if, if Amazon is sort of looking, you know, down the road, you know, at their neighbor and sort of wondering about that potential as well. And I think this does kind of speak to this, I guess I would call it a kind of, I don't know, content field or like a sort of, you know, set of universes or metaverses, of course, that people are living in on an ongoing basis. They're following those stories and they're building those relationships, as you mentioned. Um, one of the, the questions that I have, I guess, is like how to mostly understand this media opportunity, whether it is about, you know, conventional big blacks, you know, rectangles that people watch, you know, content passively through, um, whether it's something that's just kind of, you know, as you said, sort of put on in the background and it's just kind of like feeding you ads, uh, you know, alongside other things, or the thing that I'm kind of interested in is whether or not this also suggests, um, positioning for the next 10 to 20 years of media enrichment and development. And by that, I mean, whether it's augmented reality or whether it's, um, interactive video content Mm -hmm. that, you know, you can like, you know, freeze frame, like for example, uh, it's not often talked about, I think, uh, but, you know, through either fire TV or just, you know, through Amazon prime video, they have their x-ray functionality and feature set where when you pause on given scenes, you can kind of get information about what's ever seen there. Right. So if you start to apply computer vision and you use images or scenes coming through that content as a type of search, essentially, is that another way to sort of understand these ambitions and where this stuff is going broadly speaking? Yeah, that's a really, really great question. Uh, I think it always starts with, Amazon always starts with this prime base. So first and foremost, for the reason that they would have done this, first and foremost, would be to ensure that that subscriber base is well-fed and, what is, and they don't just, leave. What is their, that's um, their current concern. saturation? Uh, I, I looked quickly and it seemed like maybe there's like 71 million Amazon Prime subscribers in the U.S., which I don't know if that's accurate or not, right? So I guess like I'm, I'm also wondering about growth. Um, of yeah, the they go, yeah, so... Yeah, they go globally for the most part whenever they talk about those earnings. Um, 200 million plus is where they are at globally. Recently, Jeff Bezos uh, in the earnings said that 175 million Amazon Prime subscribers globally watched at least one movie over the last year. Uh, the, math, the easy math to do would be 175 or 200 million, but that's not necessarily fair. What's happening at those times? How long are they watching? What are they watching? How many people are watching more than one thing? So the math gets really complicated. Uh, and the big question with Prime, in terms of how it makes sense from value-wise, 
is, are, is Prime Video actually driving people, or if people are at risk of canceling, is Prime Video keeping them? But to your larger point about where this fits into the Amazon ecosystem, Amazon is one of those, those companies, kind of like Disney, kind of like an Apple, if we look at Apple One, that really leans into the Ouroboros type of strategy, which is this constant, it's going to feed back to itself. So when we look at the fact that, you know, Mike Hopkins, who's Amazon Senior Vice President of Prime Video at Amazon Studios, is now overseeing everything, Mike Hopkins also is going to start overseeing Twitch. And, like, the idea of a Rocky revival that leads to a Rocky-type game that maybe Amazon licenses out, but then they promote heavily on Twitch is something that keeps people happy, and then they can sell ads on there, and they can do specific types of uh, gifting and tipping options on Twitch as it plays out. So I think when we look at Disney and we look at something like Mandalorian or, or why they bought Star Wars and Marvel, they bought it because it's like, one, they love the storytelling, and they, there's potential there for just straight-up entertainment value. But two, they knew they could build theme park gas, and they knew they could sell a decent amount of consumer products, especially relative to other companies who are trying to figure out consumer products. And so they saw a whole world uh, beyond just TV shows and movies. And I think when you look at Amazon uh, and MGM, it's absolutely fair to assume that they're seeing beyond just a library. They're seeing beyond just films. What that means or whether or not they actually are able to deliver on that, I think it's still way too early to tell. We don't know if, the fan, if there's even interest beyond like, oh, I'm bored and they're showing me a Rocky, you know, Rocky Four or whatever, and I'm going to watch it. Um, but I do think Amazon does everything with the idea of supporting its other divisions. I mean, the idea, of course, right? Like, if you're watching, if you're going to get an ad for something on Amazon Prime Retail and you will go and buy something, is extremely part of the reason they did Prime Video and Prime Music. Um, but I think that's going to take a minute to figure out. I think. What, even if this just ends up being something that retains prime customers, again, I think they'll be very happy with. Um, but there's absolutely potential for more development uh, in different non-traditional linear sectors. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And I think it's also, I don't, like for me, it's just like important to sort of be thinking into the future in terms of, I think it's yeah. a mistake to look at like streaming companies and to think, oh, they're all going to be just like streaming more, you know, MP4 files or something, you know, obviously it's not quite exactly it, but like, you know, in that format and that's the way it's going to persist indefinitely. Like to me, well, I bring up, I bring up NFTs to every entertainment yeah. company I talk to, which is terrible because, you know, it's bad for the environment or I, I'm not trying to well, get a stance on NFTs. Right. <laughs> I don't want to deal with that, but I do think like if you're an Amazon and you've got, or Amazon, excuse me, if you're a Netflix and you've got this huge uh, base for Umbrella Academy and you know, those people, those fans tend to be pretty big on the internet and they're digital like why not sell the first two seconds of that frame of the first frame? Like, yeah. like, right. Like there's thinking forward in terms of how we, um, how we look at media and how we encompass media, how we celebrate it requires looking forward. You can't just think watching literally is going to be their number one. It's not going to be the number one business model 15 years from now. Yeah. Yeah. I think like the, the interactive media piece is like a huge aspect of this that, it, uh, you know, is often left yeah. out of the, the analysis, but I think, you yeah. know, you're right. Once, you know, you think about like the Marvel yeah. universe and the fact that they have these amazingly <laughs> elaborate 3d models of like the entire character set, you can apply that and then create a, 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 a I mean, there, I guess it's like synthetic media that you can produce in lots of different yeah. you know, capacities and ways. And I guess, so, so on that point, one of the other questions that I would have about this, um, you know, is, what what is the international angle for this? Because it feels like I actually just had a conversation um, with a person who previously formerly worked at Netflix. And one of the things that he was saying and why he, he believes that uh, Netflix is so far ahead is because they discovered like, or at least they had 
maybe there was a theory that they would just kind of take Hollywood and then, you know, kind of super dub it or whatever and translate it for a bunch of different, you know, environments around the world in different countries um, and markets. And what Netflix found was that that actually, so that strategy didn't work. It made more sense to go in and to partner with local studios, local um, content producers, and and just put that content into the, the sort of like Netflix machine. And so in this case, mm-hmm. you know, I, I guess my question is kind of around whether Amazon is at that point where they're also looking to partner with local, um, whether it's like movie makers or, or things like that, like in different parts of the world to, to power prime, or are they still relying on sort of like the Hollywood, Hollywood playbook that that notoriety is the thing that's going to drive subscriptions in other countries? It's definitely a concern for them. And it's definitely a thought on their mind. They're not doing it nearly as well as Netflix is doing, but they are by far the most global type of streaming service. I mean, just by numbers alone, they are huge. Their Amazon prime is massive. It's massive in countries like India. Uh, there is a huge potential audience base there for prime video. Does the MGM deal work into that? Probably not. That seems to be a bigger play into wanting to be a kind of major service in North America more than anything else, but parts of Europe as well. Does that mean MGM won't contribute to that? Not necessarily. I think that is the biggest issue that Amazon Prime Video has had and Prime, uh, I think Prime Video Entertainment as a whole has had is kind of a lack of general leadership over what they want it to be. And I think part of that's because Amazon hasn't really figured out what Prime Video was supposed to be to them other than a churn reducer and subscriber driver. And in that way, has it done its job? We don't even know because we don't, we don't have the segment breakdown. We don't know how many people are actually not canceling or subscribing because of this reason. I think we can take, I think we can probably take some form of sign that if they're spending nine, nearly $9 billion, so to speak, on MGM and they're trying to build a film library and they're trying to expand IP and they're trying to figure out how to be an actual player in the game, that Amazon Prime Video is doing okay for them at the very least and they want to figure out expansion. And part of that expansion is international. We're seeing it now with HBO Max where they're finally going international. Um, Disney Plus is increasingly international every single month. Uh, so, yeah, I think... I, I say this a lot whenever I talk to friends in the industry as well. I think we are past the streaming wars. We're in two different games. We're in the churn wars and we're in the expansion wars. The whole you look at Netflix. Netflix is slowing down pretty fast in the U.S. and they know that their whole goal in the U.S. is not necessarily to grow, although they are always going to try to do that. But it's to retain. Their whole thing is let's grow internationally and then try to retain those. And that's what we're going to start seeing with everyone else too. You know, Disney Plus is at 100 million. Eventually we'll get 200 million and they're going to have to start retaining and not just kind of signing up to hit your level. Um, Amazon is not there necessarily on the prime video side. I think they could still have some breakout hits. I think they can still figure out ways to entice new subscribers to come in for the video section and then stay. Uh, and I think that's why they view MGM as a big deal for them, is they finally have a library that's enticing. Totally. Uh, Julia, I there are very few people that I unequivocally just stand and just like uh, listen to read everything she does. Subscribe to Musings on the Mouse. Uh, we're going to transition here. This is a, a, <laughs> a horrible transition to the next topic, um, but. Um, Julia, you're wonderful, and um, I could talk to you for another half an hour. Please, please stay if you'd like. Um, thank you for that. And um, we're gonna weirdly. I don't. I don't even know how to do a. There's no way to do a pivot from that to Tesla, right? No, I mean there is. Like this is the thing. That <laughs> okay, all right, hit it, hit yeah, it. Like so crazy, uh, you know? Because um, so so again. 
Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ophthalmologist Dr. Strauss has seen firsthand how the metaverse is helping surgeons practice the procedures to treat cataracts. Cataracts are the primary cause of avoidable blindness. He works with a virtual reality training platform developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International to help surgeons develop the muscle memory they need. The result? More confident, capable surgeons. And even more importantly, patients who can see. Explore more stories like Dr. Strauss's at meta.com slash metaverse impact. Uh, Laura uh, has done a, a lot of great reporting on, on Tesla. And the, the topic that I actually, you know, kind of wanted to, to, to go into was the question about um, their reduction of reliance on, on radar for their computer vision systems. But before we get to that topic, there is actually a smoother transition and a pivot here, which is okay. there are several uh, job postings, actually, that have come out um, for uh, game designers and game platform developers, specifically for Linux. And so what I find very interesting about this, and it makes a ton of sense, and I think that this aligns directly with each of these companies realizing that they have to have amazing content to keep you entertained while using their products, you know, whether it's an iPhone, which fits in your pocket, or whether it's a car, which you yourself fit into, there needs to be entertainment in these platforms. And those are going to be probably subscription services, or they're going to be, you know, built in content libraries that you're going to enjoy. And one of the things that Tesla is recruiting for right now, and I'll, I'll pin a link to my tweet in a second, um, is, is these game designers for their in-car uh, entertainment system. Now, why is this important? Uh, someone you know, sort of uh, tweeted at me today saying, you know, oh, God, like, you know, I, I, I can't watch screens when I'm you know, driving a car. But as uh, someone who is in a relationship with a person who has a Tesla, I know that we spend a good deal of time going to the charging stations and sitting there and watching Netflix. Um, but there are also start there, there started to be games in the car. And you can imagine if you've got to take your kids to the charging station and sit there for an hour while your car charges up you got to provide your kids with some interesting entertainment options. So I don't know that Tesla's going to buy you know, a studio or whatever because uh, they don't need to necessarily. But if they are going they to – They have the money. Uh, sure. But if they want to differentiate from other car makers, uh, you know, then their gaming library and their gaming offerings actually have to be pretty good. So anyways, that, that is how I'm sort of seeing this. And you know, uh, Laura, I'd love to bring you up here. Um, if you want to just give us a little bit of background on yourself, and then if you, you know, had anything you wanted to add to the previous conversation, please do. But uh, the stage is yours. Thank you so much for inviting me. This is, yeah, it's funny, but Tesla is, you know, a soap opera of a company and wildly entertaining itself. But <laughs> right, they also. When, when, when is the documentary coming out? <laughs> yeah, which another one. I mean, there have been many, uh, but um, the. Yeah, they rolled out this, you know, sort of arcade thing in early 2020, I think. Don't quote me on that. And they've always had, you know, a high like high degree of humor and ambition about making their cars entertaining. I think in general, it's part of Elon Musk's approach of winning over a younger generation, far too young to buy EVs, right? But um when you get all the little kids talking about, well, what like, what does like, it do for for like the a driver's license if you're not if you're not driving? Right. Like, 
if the kid's not driving, then you can actually have like a, yeah, well, I don't know. They're not going to buy the car, but anyways, continue. Sorry. Right. But they still have influence on their parents. I, I hear this all the time oh, and totally. it's, you yep. know, yep. Elon Musk's power alley is this kind of like marketing on a shoestring and it just fits in well with his whole, yeah, with his whole approach um, of, of making these cars matter to people who aren't even in the market, you know, like little kids in this case. Um, and then also it, it resolves some of the boredom of waiting. If your charging time is too long because whatever, you have an older vehicle or you're, you're at an older charging station, it's less frustrating, you know, and you don't have to deplete your phone's battery, right? You can play right in the in-vehicle infotainment system. But I, I always feel like um, it's also a, a lesser-known fact that Elon Musk is on the board of Endeavor, you know, and it's a pure Wait, entertainment sorry. company. What is, I don't know what Endeavor is. Endeavor Global, it's Ari Emanuel's business, you know. Oh, um, mm-hmm. Yeah, right. people don't realize this This is a newly, you know, it's a new arrangement, but I mean, it's like Ari Emanuel has been a friend of slash supporter of the kind of EV movement and Elon Musk for, for lo these many years, and now Elon's on the board, and like they represent all these incredible stand-up comics, and they have, you know, MMA and pageant business, and it's it's kind of like this unholy union of hard tech and hits-driven businesses that tends to happen around Elon. Like, I'm on a first-name basis with him. I think he pretty (laughs) much dislikes reporters that are being counter-business reporters. But, um, I mean, uh, I I actually, Julia, was really interested in um, what you think, you know, from Silicon Valley to LA, like, why do you think these tech companies think they can play in the realm of hits-driven businesses? I mean, (laughs) they're not you know, storytellers, writers, producers, like, why do they all want to be here? It looks like Julia might have dropped off. Oh, so well, do you have an answer to your question? Yes. Good. (laughs) Okay. Why do you think so? Um, I just think it's like revenge of the nerds. Like everyone Uh, wants to be uh, cool and they think maybe they can take growth hacking lessons and apply them to things that aren't as predictable, um, as you know, some aspects of, uh, digital product and app app design. Um, you know, it's, I, I think it's with software, you're shipping features, you're, you can provision them, you can test and change it. Iterate. You can't do that with a feature film, right? It's out and you might get one director's cut second chance. But, um, I, I, you know, I, I say the revenge of the nerds thing jokingly, but it's, um, it's a little piece of that at least. And then again, I think there's a little possible misperception about, um, the idea that growth hacking techniques and user experience research can be applied to, you know, content, films, music, whatever. I mean, at the same time, like I got to imagine, you know, just as they, uh, I think, um, Bezos famous adage was, you know, someone else's margin is his opportunity, essentially. Like (laughs) when you look at, and I, I, I totally understand and hear where, where you're coming from um, in terms of looking at like Hollywood and the way that like the creative industries work and how much money kind of sloshes around. Um, and, you know, we also, I know that there was some, some reporting about um, what happened when I, I believe it was HBO max sort of said that they were going to what either not put their films into movie theaters or something like that in 2021. And there was like this huge, you know, row with um, what's his name, the guy that wanted all the money or something, but you know, and they just had to like pay them off. <laughs> right. Like there's a different, you know, maybe, maybe I'll like, I'll, I'll, I'll take this like in a slightly different, uh, tack, but 
Yeah. Okay. Interesting. So sorry, what's happening in my brain right now is like, I'm seeing this parallel between what's happening in the advertising sort of business where previously, you know, advertisers, you know, would spend a ton of money, you know, kind of in the Mad Men era, um, on loads of things. But as, as they say, you know, advertising works, you just, you just don't know which 50% does or some, something along those lines. And hmm. with the internet, yes. now everything became measurable and you can actually track conversions. And it's a very clear kind of ROI in terms of what you're spending and what you're getting in return. So that seems to have happened in the advertising space. Now in the creator space, to your point, that's starting to happen again. Now there's still kind of well-known, you know, big names in terms of the way that the, I don't know if it's like the Hollywood machine or that industry produces those personalities and those profiles. But, and I don't mean to take this in the creator economy direction, but the creator economy is in a, in a similar way, kind of creating more, uh, trackable, I guess, ways of creating content that's totally different than the way that Hollywood used to work before, where you'd kind of like, you know, just let the artiste like be the artiste and like produce their films. And now we're saying actually YouTube and I mean, even, even what uh, Instagram came out with, I think yesterday, it's, it's sort of ironic that you have this like one, two punch on the one hand, they just announced new stats for people who are producing reels and stories and things like that. And of course today they just also gave you the option to take, take away likes. So point being, I think in some ways, like there is a real kernel of truth in what you're saying in terms of the desire to make things more either accountable or um, reduced down to a set of algorithms that can be optimized. And as a result, you can lower the cost um, and then make it more accessible um, and also perform better. Yeah. And I love, I love to see new media experimentation. I don't, I don't mean to um, discourage anyone from tech getting into creative or vice versa, frankly, but it's just, yeah, it's, it occurs to me that Silicon Valley and Hollywood are more and more alike. I've always seen some connections, some parallels. I say this as a tech reporter who has worked at a range of traditional and newer media organizations, and that includes the Hollywood Reporter and TechCrunch, but also Wall Street Journal and CNBC. So, um, it's, it's kind of funny, right? Like the VCs are sort of like producers. The founders are kind of like the talent, you know, totally, totally. <laughs> programmers like right. coders are sort of like the screenwriters and the writing room. Well, what do you think? Um, I mean, as more tech companies, you know, own more of, you know, Hollywood's icons, like will those cultures kind of be gutted or will they persist? I mean, does MGM sort of pers- like retain its brand, you know, as, a great question. you know, as a division of, of Amazon? I do not know. I cannot, I cannot even approach a prediction there. (laughs) The, um, but I, I will say, I think, um, I think it's going to change culture. If we are, it's going to change the quality of arts and entertainment. If we are going to measure everything the Mm. same way that, you know, cable had ratings, but newspapers, newspapers preceding them didn't. And then cables more fast twitch and, newspapers had more in-depth features like back in the day, but it's, it's like, right. Everything has ratings now, even your own personal photos on Instagram or, or something like that, your reels. And, um, I think that will have an effect of, uh, possibly negative kind in terms of, uh, in, in terms of, um, like, I guess what you guys call clickbait, but it's, it's right. I mean, optimization right. basically, right. For a certain yeah. type of, or a certain set of outcomes, you know, at the same time though, I wonder like, because the, the, the pushback that I would have on, on that concept is what I'm seeing in 
I don't know, like more emergent creative fields or creative arts. And I guess I'm sort of thinking to Snapchat's recent, um, you know, partner uh, event where they're starting to really show the creativity of a new class of, I don't know, like, uh, like a digital native generation that's able to synthesize lots of really new and interesting and emergent phenomenon, either through augmented reality or in VR space or in the metaverse and having access to, and the reason why I'm thinking about this is because one of the ways in which Instagram and TikTok actually um, seem to have a really big competitive advantage over many other smaller platforms that allow you to create stories and things like that is the fact that they license the music and they pay for their users' use of songs, of, of copyrighted content, in order to get people to create content that people really respond to, right? So whether it's like lip syncing or duos or dances, all of that stuff would not be allowed uh, from a copyright, you know, Right perspective, unless the platforms themselves were licensing it and paying on behalf of the, their users. So in this case, if you just buy the studio now for an entire generation, you can allow your creators, you know, who are on your platform, you think about sort of like a Fortnite type, um, you know, value prop where they have a lot of IP, they have a lot of, you know, the Marvel universe shows up in Fortnite. Maybe on the, on the Twitch side, that's the kind of thing that Amazon can see as being a benefit where people can actually yeah. make use of that IP that's coming out of those studios. You know, it's so funny. And even though Tesla is not an entertainment company, um, like Elon Musk has been criticized for like, you know, meme stealing or what have you. That's more, I think that's more um, generally people are ribbing him, but also in a more serious sense, they had used this, you know, rainbow farting unicorn um, from a a folk artist uh, Mm -hmm. in, in their infotainment system. And that all settled out and got resolved. But it's like, even, uh, even non-entertainment companies can get in trouble with with this sort of fragmented licensing landscape. Um, and you know, artists just want to make a living. They're not like crazy greedy. Um, they're the independent artists. Just they want some recognition. They want to make a living. They want to be known. They want ownership, and that's deeply understandable. Um, I know we were going to talk about the deep tech guts uh-huh. of Tesla's autopilot and so on. Um, and I'm so far off from that, but I, I really, I um, about to bring us back around, but no, I think this is like really great. Right. Cause I think it's putting it into like a broader context. I have a Tesla obsession if it doesn't show, um, the, so where do we even begin, Chris? Um, yeah, well, so like for me, and just to sort of set the stage, um, and I'm, I'm sure I'll try to find the, the tweet and I've, I've pinned some other tweets so you guys can get some context. Um, what I found was just very interesting about this um, was that Tesla is coming out and saying their computer vision that powers their car and the sensors that allow, of course, the car to drive itself um, previously, or at least up to now, have relied on a mix of conventional cameras, sonar, radar, um, and munging all that stuff together. And essentially what, you know, Elon has been talking about recently, I'm going to be on a first name basis with him as well, um, has been talking about recently is moving over to camera cameras only essentially for computer for relying on computer vision and neural networks to do all that work. Um, and you had some interesting insights uh, about what that means. And I think what I'm, what I'm wondering about, and, and uh, let me just put this out there as, as sort of a thought bubble, and then you can pop it if you like. Um, but if we're starting to notice that there's more and more EVs coming out, like Ford has been making a bunch of announcements about this. And so they're moving heavily in that direction, right? So the competitive space is also shaping up to be quite, you know, interesting. Whereas I feel like for, you know, generations, companies like VW were just, you know, hell bent on destroying the planet. Um, And now that's starting to change, I think, because market 
uh, as you said, like, you know, kids, the younger generation are seeing that the, you know, environment is, is actually very important and they're going to vote with their, their dollars. So my, my thought bubble is this, if we imagine five to 10 years into the future, knowing how long it takes to spin up supply chains, if you move over to a world where you're relying more heavily on simply cameras and of course, cameras getting better and, you know, computer vision and neural networks and AI getting better, um, does, will Tesla be able to actually become as safe as it needs to be using only that technology because more and more vehicles will actually be driving themselves and there'll be less humans actually causing a lot of the problems that you would need perhaps many, many more sensors to to deal with. So it's noteworthy that Tesla is the lone wolf here um, in that Mm. they are not taking this. We, We know Elon Musk famously is against LIDAR, called it a fool's errand and a lot of other things. Um, LIDAR is that light ranging and detection sensor that mm-hmm. sort of creates these point maps and can, right. can sense how far away an object like those is. Those are being it, built into our phones now too. Yes. And a d- different kind of LIDAR, but mm-hmm. right. The automotive grade LIDAR for, you know, it, he, he's always bucked that trend. And then, and then taking this radar out is, another level, you know, just leaving it to all the cameras. Cameras can only e- interpret. Explain that. Explain that. Another level in terms of like, this is not what the whole rest of the industry mm-hmm. believes, yeah. right? Exactly. Uh, the whole rest of the industry is doing this with, or the whole rest of, I'll say the, the industry that is trying to develop autonomous vehicles, right? Like truly automated driving where you can mostly let the car drive itself in, in, normal driving conditions, right? Maybe not in a crazy storm or something like that, but um, in, in some defined driving conditions or or just completely, you know, driverless scenarios, like all the companies that are going after that are using a sensor suite. And in fact, Tesla itself, like back in 2016, really emphasized, hey, we're upgrading how much, you know, advanced, how, how much radar will play a role in our autopilot system. It's going to be this, you know, um, data integrated with the the information we get off the cameras and it's going to be so great and so safe. And now they're doing it about face and questions remain as to why, you know, if your vision system really was that good, why wouldn't you remove the radars from all of your vehicles? How come you're only doing this in North America for model three and model Y? Uh, mm-hmm. There are a lot of lingering questions, but but Elon Musk stated the aim of the company now since going back to March to switch to what he calls pure vision, right? Relying on cameras only. They still have ultrasonic for parking sensors. Um, those are only, you know, really for use, like, when you're going at slower speeds. I mean, that probably makes un- sense, right? Because if you think about, like, trying to take a close-up picture of a parking spot that you're parallel. Actually, it's hilarious. The other day, I... I um when I was driving my partner's Tesla, I used the, the the parallel parking thing, and because of the awkward space that that we were in, it like literally like put me in the middle of the parking spot. It, it, like, it was like totally useless. Anyways, yeah, it's not perfect, right? I mean, <laughs> but like we're the, not the, there. I guess yet. I'm saying the 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 supersonic or the sonic um, ultrasonic ultrasound. Thank you. Um, provides a, a better sense for where things are based on that kind of Doppler effect of sort of sensing like, okay, this is that actually that far away as opposed to just using um, vision, which can also be super distortive at short distances. So, as far as I'm concerned, um, 
you know, I, I hear their goals. I'm not sure if it will work. This is outside of my domain mm-hmm. expertise, right? So I rely on people that are involved in computer software engineering, computer vision, electrical engineering. And I speak with a lot of them. And some of them, you know, are are rooting for Tesla and others think this is just terribly risky and, you know, people could die. But it's it's a it's a wide range of views as to, you know, whether it can whether computer vision ever can become that good, that you can do it primarily based on cameras, software and, you know, a neural net. But the the risk here is you are taking a system you built to incorporate data from radar and you are now removing the radar and essentially they've admitted and announced they're downgrading features at least temporarily. Um, it remains yeah, to be so, seen how quickly they can bring those features back. Okay, which is so when cameras. you say that, yeah. Okay. So, so I think what I'm, if I were to parse this, the reason why they're downgrading is because they're essentially going to no longer have, you know, radar as an input into their algorithms. And the thought is that if they switch over to camera based vision um, at scale, that they will be able to uh, consume that much more data in order to train the neural nets faster. And at once they've kind of made up for, you know, let's say what, you know, the, the information uh, gap that, uh, radar sort of left, then they can switch back on to, you know, full autonomous or, or whatever, bring those, those features back basically because they've made up for the lack that the, the, the loss of radar causes. I mean, when I say downgrade, I am saying that Tesla has, you know, announced, Hey, some of these features will not be available or you can't use this at a, you know, speed over 75 miles right. an hour. Right. So I'm not speaking to the technical, you okay. know, quality of the data. Um, it seems to me if you're removing a sensor and the, that input, then yeah, your system is reading something different. It's maybe doing harder work to predict more, um, what, like, to, to figure out how to navigate. Like what the core, is it really just about price? Is it about cost? Is it like that these sensors add? <laughs> That's my question. Yeah. You know, like what is the, like, I can understand like why you'd want to move to. Or, or not, not even cost. Is it just that they're behind on this technology, and so they they just want to abandon it because? Uh, and I'm sorry uh, to, to jump in to sort of repeat what Chris said. Like the 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 argument they've been making is that well, why are we competing with the Waymos and the other people of the world? Is because well, we have actual cars on the road. So we're, we're not testing stuff. Like we have every day we're training our, our neural nets and things like that. Um, is it that, is it that they're leaning into what they have on the cars and, and, and because the, like the, the radar is not something that they're, um, you know, the, the best in class at or something. There, there, I, I'm there just there needs to be some sort of, I don't know if it's like a, um, what's the, the Moore's law for computer vision where like, if there's a chart, like, so in this blog post, which is called transitioning to Tesla vision, you know, if they were able to say, okay, so basically we can keep producing cars with radar, but essentially within five to 10 years, we're not going to need the radar sensors anymore because the, the Tesla vision is going to be sufficient to operate without radar. So we're going to save ourselves millions and millions of dollars in the cost um, and remove that sensor because it's no longer necessary because we're going to make up for it, you know, with this, you know, with our AI. That that seems to be the bet that they are making. So Chris, I just DM'd you a cached Google page Um, in 2016 Hmm. after there was a first fatality involving a distracted driver using, you know, over-reliant on autopilot. All right. A driver died when his Tesla on autopilot um, 
crashed into the underbody of a, you know, semi in Florida. It was, it was famous. You know, everyone talked about it. It was a watershed moment. Joshua Brown, you know, rest in peace, like big Tesla fan, I, you know, a, a veteran. It's a, um, after that, Tesla had this 2016 post, which has now disappeared off their I just site. I uh, the link to, to this space, by the way, if you want to check it you out. You know, there's a cat version here available that we're sharing with you but at that time you know tesla was talking up we're, we're going to upgrade autopilot with the use of more advanced signal processing to create a picture of the world using the onboard radar right and ever since then they've talked wow. about their sensor suite mm-hmm. you know this yeah. robust if you guys haven't uh, spent time mucking around with tech reporters and tesla fans <laughs> and stuff i'll tell you so radar um is useful where cameras are weaker uh it you know it, it uses um radio like to to kind of sense where objects are. Right. I mean, like, right? It's like so it might work right? at and there's night. No light, right. Like that would right. be an in obvious low light place. conditions. Yeah. Right. And actually most pedestrian deaths that mm, result yep. from traffic collisions occur in low light. That was the Uber and, situation, right? Yeah. And so radar has been seen as a good redundant sensor to add inputs to your system to help in situations like that or certain inclement weather. Um, each of these things, cameras, LIDAR, radar, all have their strengths and weaknesses. And, you know, the software makes all the difference. So I think Tesla is banking on the fact that they can make up for any weaknesses in cameras um, through great programming and prediction and, you know, data analysis and all that goes into computer vision. Um, but like I said, they are distinct from the rest of the industry. And right now they are effectively surprising customers who had ordered these cars and saying, hey, you're not going to have the sensor that we previously touted as more robust and absolutely necessary. Yeah, the thing that's and, really, sorry, just like strange about this. Like, I'm like, are there going to be like a run on the Teslas that have <laughs> radar, right? I'm like, oh, my partner's Tesla like just became more valuable. On the other hand, sort of like those NVIDIA uh, chips yeah, right, that exactly. can still do, <laughs> right, right, still uh, do Bitcoin mining. Crypto mining, yeah. Right. But like, that's really interesting. But I wonder though, because of the over the air updates, if they would neutralize that by effectively removing, you know, that input from that sensor, right. From, from what they're using to analyze like the world, you know what I mean? Like they just kind of like turn it off via and yeah, over right. the ignore the input. Yeah. Right. Right. I mean, there's a possibility they could ignore the inputs from radar and the rest of the fleet. I don't, I don't think they've addressed all these questions yet. Right. Um, I think to yeah, Brian, they have a frequently asked questions and there's two questions. <laughs> yeah. Brian had asked a question about whether this was just for cost cutting yeah. or some other reason. And there are a lot of questions about whether they had who, like, who is their most recent radar supplier? What is the relationship like there? Is it deteriorating? Is it cost cutting, et cetera? Um, overseas, it, it seems like they're retaining these radars. It might be a requirement. I'm trying to get answers on this from, you know, the vehicle regulation authorities in, in Europe and in China. Well, why isn't there um, sort of like a, um, I don't know, like a TSA mandated approach to, you know, computer vision and what computers or what, what cars need to be able to sense? you know, using like this array, right? Because there's no regulations for this stuff. I know, that's my question. Is it just too soon? So so in the United States, um, in particular under the prior administration, we had NHTSA, which is the vehicle regulatory authority at the federal level, you know, saying things like, we don't want to be too hasty in regulating 
autonomous vehicles or even autonomous vehicle development. It's sort of this self-reporting system, right? Uh, the reason they didn't want to hammer down with regulation too fast or be too prescriptive about what technology has to go into these systems uh, was because they didn't want to, and I'm borrowing this phrase from the um, then acting administrator, James Owens, they didn't want to stymie innovation, right? And they left it up to local, sure. to states to deal with this. Yeah. And then, you know, now they're in the middle of evaluating everything and under Secretary Pete, uh, who runs DOT now, like, we'll see if NHTSA really changes. They just accepted a bunch of comments. There's this other agency called the NTSB, right. which which investigates unusual crashes. You know, usually it's emerging technology or something really disastrous, like a ferry crash or a plane crash that, um, you know, it's, it's unusual for a more grim reason. But uh, with... With emerging technology, like NTSB has already made recommendations, and they believe that Teslas need things like a driver monitoring system. And we have yet to hear a, a public statement from NTSB on this radar choice. But the deal is, uh, if you haven't been following our coverage or others, um, Tesla keeps telling regulators that what what autopilot and FSD are are these level two systems that fit um, this engineering, you know, kind of. Categorizing Can you remind us what those two. those levels are and what they mean? Yeah, I can't go through all of them sure. like in depth. You should look at the, or there are five levels. Okay. Um, the five is like the you know driverless car of your dreams, like right. Mr. It's Rogers like level trolley that takes you anywhere you want to <laughs> like go. You should go, Mr. Rogers. I'm like, yeah, yeah, like yeah. Mr. Rogers, the futurist. Um, oh, but. And and one is a car without these automated systems. But level two is you know it it has an auto like these these. Uh, Advanced driver assistance systems still require a human driver monitoring it at all times, preferably hands on the wheel, ready to take over the driving task at any time. Just super autopilot, or not autopilot, but uh, cruise control. Yeah, and and Tesla's telling the California DMV, our systems that are on the road, even FSD beta, are level two, and we'll notify you when we think we've approached, you know, when we've achieved level three which, you know, allows your car to operate hands-free safely in some conditions that are really well-defined and clear and all of this. And it's, it's, um, it's confusing, I think, to owners. Like, owners have so much faith in each other, in these cool stunt videos they're seeing all over social media, now, now, in clear, Elon Musk. Let's, let's describe those, those videos where basically people are in the back seat. There is no one in the front, and the car is driving itself. Is that what you mean? Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Well, right. The car is being unsafely operated. Right. Like the, this, you know, this guy got lucky and he was very enthusiastic and believed that the Tesla tech was good enough. So he tried it. All right. right. 
But um, I don't want to really see a lot of like a preponderance people like, you know, F around and find out. Right. It's right. it's sort of it's not just them on the road. It's also everyone else around them. And totally. um, it's, you know, even even if they only crash into like a telephone pole, it's like, do we want to use like like public resources to repair things well, it's, that, it's you, like, know, you know, really- wear a mask, like, you know, monitor your AI. You know, it's kind of the same. <laughs> mind, mind the steering wheel. So. <laughs> It's, um, there was that video, uh, where, yeah, this, this kind of, um, influencer, you know, part, partly performance, you know, but I think he really did have, uh, mis- misplaced faith in the systems, um, because they are so impressive because they feel so, so safe. They lull you into a sense that you can just use it this way, but you're not supposed to. And even Tesla's fine print very much spells out this requires active supervision. This does not make your car driverless. But do people pay attention to the fine print when the CEO is talking about this bright future for driverless? When he's, you know, saying on Rogan, like, autopilot's going to be so good and, and right around the corner that you barely have to drive unless you want to. It's just it's confusing for people in a in in a, a lot of ways. I think. From well, by I'm now, concerned. by now, in theory, uh, Tesla owners should be renting their cars out uh, to earn extra money. That's what was supposed <laughs> to happen this year, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, how fun would that be, right? Like you just you know put your car to work like uh, while you work and you're making extra income. I mean, it would be incredible, but it's it's not here. And um, I think self-driving cars always feel like they're right around the corner, but the development that's required is, uh, I mean, hats off to all the people taking on this ambitious goal, but it's, it's really complicated. Um, I think actually Brian has a bet with himself about when we're going Yeah. To- so this was, <laughs> this was, this was my capper, uh-huh. but, um, you know, I, w- w- we joked, uh, this show's what, three years old now. And so for the first two years, it was self-driving by 2020. And then, of course, uh, COVID happened. So then I, I gave up on that bet. But even even now, um, you know, Lyft and, and Uber were saying that uh, like the majority of their rides would be driverless by 2021. They both got mm. out of the driverless business at this point. Um, I'm wondering specifically to to bring this back to Tesla. To what degree? I'm not sure how to say this. To what degree? with Elon Musk being one of the greatest showmen in the world, is Tesla hanging on to this idea that self-driving is right around the corner when it feels like, you know, Jesus, man, like half of Waymo's executive team has left over the last six months. Like, are they just clinging on to this promise of something that, is is still five years away, ten years away at best. Like I, I'm just, I'm just so skeptical, uh, specifically with Tesla, uh, as they're eliminating the things that would even maybe help them get to self driving. If this is just like fingernails, you know, and and they're falling off the cliff or something. So, are you asking what I think about their self driving ambitions? I think, or- I, I think what I'm asking. And you're right. There wasn't a question there. <laughs> I think what I'm asking is: is um, does Tesla need more than anyone else to make the self-driving stuff work? Because, like you know, Waymo can still kick it down the road. Um, you know, uh, Cruise. Uh, what's the what's the Ford-backed one? I can't remember. Argo. Uh, Argo. Argo. Right. 
like they're they're not saying that this is going to be the problem with Tesla is is they have been telling the existing Tesla owners, people that have had cars, owned them for three years, that this is something that is right around the corner. Like, are they still clinging to this because it's something that they can't walk away from at this point? Uh, they definitely committed to it. I mean, they've raised a huge round of thing, uh, you know, and they have used this in their marketing materials and as a recruiting tool. And it's, I mean, it's a, it's the potential of this technology to save lives is, is what everyone gravitates towards, right? If we can have computers drive us that are better. Right. What, what, what I, I guess what I'm saying is, is that they're the only ones that are on the road. Like Waymo is still potential. Um, uh, uh, have you seen what's the, new, the, for- the new vehicles, by the way, the new Waymo, the Jaguars? Yeah, they're uh, all over San Francisco. Yeah, I, I saw one yesterday for the first time. Yeah. So, so I, I what I'm saying is is that like are they are they just using the analogy of the roadrunner running off the road, <laughs> you know, like falling down. Like they're they're just trying they're they're scrambling 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 until something can happen. You know, they have to make it work. That's where they are. I, say, I like, don't that's think that's their whole can, brand. Yeah. That's the whole business, right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brian, have you ever actually been in, in uh, a, a Tesla that was driving itself? Um, I have, yes, been in the back seat. I've not been behind the wheel of one, though. Okay. I, I guess I bring that up because prior to me having the experience of driving to LA, like myself and with the car and the car driving itself, I don't know that I would have had, I don't know, the ability to say, actually, it's, it is quite good. And the augmented ability of a human driver with autopilot as it exists is itself just like a total game changer in terms of the experience of owning and operating, you know, a vehicle. And so mm-hmm. even at the standard level where it's at now, it's just a night and day difference with any other car. Cause I also uh, drive a, a gas, uh, a hoopty. A hoopty, sure. Exactly. <laughs> it's a very, very old G35. Um, and I'm like borrowing it. So, and I can't wait for it to go away. But, like, point being that I don't feel like it's just like this, like, kind of, you know, I don't know, struggle forever. Like, there is value in what already exists. The question I think, which I think is super interesting in this Tesla, like, vision positioning is where like it, not to not to be too uh on the nose but like is tesla really seeing around the corner here um to where the technology and the ai is likely to go because they're looking at the data they're looking at the charts and they're saying if we have x percent you know a thousand percent more data than everybody else or 10 million percent more data than everyone else okay you know what this this is kind of this is why i've been struggling to formulate okay. what i've been trying to say okay. is that I think that my gut is that they they're too far out on the ledge here, like in, in the ways that they anticipated. Well, that they're okay. never going to get there. That that this technology is still ten years away, right? They kind of drank the Kool Aid that everyone else did. It's just that Sorry, everyone to else. Be clear though about the technology, though we're talking specifically about capabilities, right? Yeah, because this is my point. Like. I suppose if the idea is that we're going to live in a world where humans don't drive cars anymore, that does mm-hmm. feel like that could be 10 years off. But yep. if, if your evaluation is, can I go on a you know, long distance you know, drive 
And well, that's what I want. I've, I've said that. <laughs> You've heard me. But I'm saying like that. My experience was that I probably used you know 15 to 20 percent of the same level of uh, of like awareness in, using mm, autopilot mm, mm. relative to being the sole operator of the vehicle without the augmentation of the artificial intelligence that was supporting my activities. All right. Let me let me put it in this context, uh, and then uh, Laura, back to you. But um, okay. So if we assume that. Uh, Lyft and Uber uh, six years ago were like, well, self-driving is right around the corner and this is an existential threat to our entire business model. So we've got to put right. all this money into this. And, 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 and we, they, they, they walked away from it because that was a fool's errand. Um, I feel like Tesla is still the only one hanging out there on that limb because other people haven't committed as much to it right now. Tesla still feels like that they're out there and they're the ones um, uh, uh, gathering all this tech and and so right maybe they'll get they'll be the first to level three or whatever and they're maybe they're the best right now at level two fine I'm just wondering to what degree they're still clinging to that branch because they're the only ones out there hanging on it where everyone else has sort of walked it back I mean they have to make it work right it's like it's it's like chris was saying it is the brand it's a huge it's as important as electrification was these are software defined vehicles they always have been from the beginning because they needed battery management and monitoring to happen through software but with um you know elon musk kind of taking over the company uh he had been an investor and then like people forget he wasn't the original ceo and stuff um but he's definitely you know grown it and expanded it and done this pioneering over the air software updates thing which from a safety vantage is great when it is you know issuing a software update that improves the safety or performance of the vehicle fleet like all at once but can get complicated when you're like provisioning features and then taking them away like right. like we've just right. seen with yep. um you know radar they're they're not going to build radar in and so they can you know uh restrict these features or throttle these features until they figure out how the system should work with, without radar, um, which, you know, is supposedly just around the corner, but then again, so is full self-driving. Um, anyway, radar has been removed from this like subset of cars and they're clearly not dropping all of their like research and use of radar. Um, and if you don't have the radar, they're degrading your autopilot because now the, the vision, vision confidence as researchers call it would be that much worse um, it's, it's just, it's complicated, but it is their identity, right? Software improvements to cars over the air. Your car feels new every time you get fart mode or a dog mode improvement, or <laughs> they have all these wonderful things like never, never underestimate the power of like humor in marketing and these small delights to tide people over and make sure your fans and owners stay patient while they deal with these other frustrations, right? Like they're impatient for the full self-driving you know, experience to go beyond level two or something like that. I've been wondering, you know, if the owners that purchased autopilot and FSD are all going to be uh, cool with <laughs> the features topping out at the level where they are, you know, like, or are mm, we going right. to see a spate of small claims lawsuits um, once people realize, oh, wow, this is only level two. And I didn't expect to be paying this much for essentially very sophisticated, you know, cruise control, advanced driver assistance, not automated driving. It's super expensive. I mean, you know, whatever, it's like a five or $10,000 upgrade. Right. And it is fascinating to the thing that I found so interesting 
you know, being in a relationship with a person who does own a Tesla was the way in which there are these in-app purchases essentially that expand the sort of lifetime value of a customer in a way that conventional cars never have been really able to do. You know, you might go in and, you know, upgrade, I don't know, a motor or something or, you know, get hubcaps, but like to have the core functionality, the entertainment system, like actually evolve and get better, the UI get better just the same way that our phones do, I think is a compelling value proposition. Every business, every business is a software business now, right? Well, and, and they're all moving to subscription, yeah. right? So, so totally. So, I want to want to pause this real quick. I, I did bring a meal up. Um, hopefully, you know, if you want to pop in real quick and and either ask a question or or make a statement quickly, um, that would be great. Rip. Yeah. So, so, so just really quickly, um, it's it's small fun fact. Uh, I put this in my one of my newsletters last month. Honda actually started selling the world's first car certified with level three. Um, driving tech um, back in April. Now they're only selling or leasing 100 models of them, but you know, just a little tidbit. It's not like everyone's stuck at level two and trying to figure it all out. We are seeing how did they gains get there, and you know what? Like, I guess the thing that I want to, I guess, like you know, leave this this conversation on is a sense for where this puts Tesla in the competitive space. Right? We started out this conversation talking about you know Amazon and MGM and. Um, you know, content and the streaming wars, you know, this is another thing around self-driving wars. And so it does seem like there's a bunch of other companies that are going to be producing their EVs. And one of the selling features, you know, because they're going to be compared with, well, do I buy a Tesla or do I buy a Ford EV um, is whether or not they come with self-driving and what level of self-driving is actually available. So I guess that would be interesting, you know, relative to what, what you've read and seen, Emil, what, what do you think about uh, the competitive space? Yeah, I mean, so if you're thinking U.S. only, that's a different conversation. This, to be clear, was in Japan. Um, yeah. And, you know, some of this has to be, you have to have, you know, certified means that the government allowed it, right? And it's on, um, are there different I think, rules? level three. I and different rules in different countries, but like, like, are, like. Right, right. But, right. yeah, so, so level three means that it can automatically accelerate and steer under certain conditions. But you, the driver still has to assume control within seconds when alerted. So, and I don't know if level three is industry standard everywhere. Um, but I mean, the government has to allow it to happen, right, on certain roads and certain sections. Um, but I, or if you correct me if I'm wrong, I believe that that means that, um, it, like, it, it doesn't mean you can take that car and put it elsewhere, right? Like, if you, I don't know somehow managed to get that car that's level three certified and put it in another country that wouldn't be able to legally drive it. Right. Yeah. I mean, like for example, Tesla relies on, you know, different sets of mapping data in different countries. I'm, you know, Google doesn't work in China exactly the way <laughs> like they can't rely right. on that in China. So it's, um, that's, that's part of the, you know, inputs into the car system for navigation and, uh, it will affect how good the ADAS or um, full self-driving eventually might be. Um, but it's, yeah, that Honda, I remember when the news on the Honda dropped and it was like, oh, how did we get there? Well, part of it was testing and simulation, right? I joked about this once mm -hmm. when I met John Krafchick. I'm like, okay, so you're joining Waymo. Like, um, he's since resigned from Waymo and is just advising and stuff. But like, I joked, like, how much are you testing in Grand Theft Auto? But seriously, so much can be done in these simulated um, scenarios, right? It's how yeah. it's how yeah. rocks 
makers, plane makers, nuclear sub makers like test because they can't just put a vehicle out on the road, right? If it's a nuclear submarine carrier, like it's, um, so part of it is through testing in SIM. And I think more and more, uh, autonomous vehicle development companies are understanding that there are startups like applied intuition that play there, or like unity has some of that unity, you know, started out doing whatever, like cross compilers and video games and things like that. But it's, um, it's kind of interesting how entertainment and cars come together that way. Like these systems for our petty entertainment actually end up like changing our built environment and the vehicles we use. Um, but uh, I mean, is- speaking of entertainment, that's that's the, that's the pitch. They're saying that you know you can drivers can watch TV or DVD or whatever on on screen as long as the car is going. I think it was less than uh, fifty kilometers an hour in in, in highway traffic. So. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and you look at all the things that Tesla is adding to its car um, in terms of entertainment. Like that's not, you know, they're doing that on purpose. They right? They're hoping they that to are. eventually let you let you. Yep. Yeah, yep. exactly. They're hoping to well, let you it's an entertainment do exactly that. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. We've been going for, for quite a while now. Um, Laura, this is super great to have you here. Um, would love to have you back. Um, is there anything that you'd like to plug or promote? Where can people find more about you and about, uh, your writing? Oh, thank you so much. Yeah. I mean, cnbc.com has got an incredible tech team and all my colleagues should be (laughs) your follows. Um, I think I saw Jordan Novit in here and he gets really hardcore into the, uh, Mm-hmm. semiconductor computer vision AI stuff that's, you know, a little bit out of my um, power alley. I I also work with uh, Jen Elias, who covers Alphabet, and so she'll keep you up to speed on on Waymo. It, uh, not, not CNBC folks, like I can plug CNBC folks all day, and I know them and their mm-hmm. work so well, but like, if you want to follow um, a really super enthusiastic, like Tesla Model X owner who is an incredible tech brain and posts all his adventures into the code. And, you know, uh, follow this handle green, the only mm. at green, the only on Twitter. He, mm. um, he basically just tweets all these amazing finds from, you know, evaluating the code and driving his own model X and looking at every last filing on earth. I mean, it's not, um, it's not news. It's more in the weeds, but if you're super into yeah, FSD autopilot, loves getting into the weeds for sure. Yeah, Green the Only is is really interesting. Independent researcher, um, Tesla Model X driver, you know, um, and I just I would love to hear from any of you, especially Tesla owners, um, whether you're a fan or a hater or whatever. I love to hear from people who have had some experiences with the car or the company. Like, hit me up anytime. Thanks so much for giving me you know a chance to say that. What's, like, what's the best way to to reach out to you? My my emails in my Twitter bio. You can DM me. I keep my DMs open, and I want to say like reporters are perceived as haters. It's not that at all. It's it's like I have to report the good, the bad, and the ugly. Like I don't have control over. I can't just talk about. We this is giving me hope, and it's so fun and funny. And sometimes it's just a function of like, hey, when I was on. Um, but yeah, we we take a lot of heat, but um, I, I'm not a hater. It's a you know huge domestic automaker. I. I'm interested in. Um, I well, want to. I mean, see her. given everything we talked about, right? Like, I mean, like holding these these folks accountable for the products that they're putting out in the world, and you know, calling it out when it's good, calling out when it's bad. I think is a super necessary. Like, yeah, but but Laura's Laura Laura's like uh, in this weird space, sort of like crypto, mm-hmm. where it's ah. like you can yeah. right. you can never the, the cause could never fail. You can only fail the cause. <laughs> That's correct. Yes, but, but just you know, reporters are people too, you guys. But hit us up. I'd love to hear from everyone. All, all your Tesla thoughts. Bring it my way. 
I, this is the most entertaining company I've ever covered. I've never experienced anything like this as a, as a business and tech reporter where there's so much passion to either direction. Um, uh, yeah, but also keep your hands on the wheel. Even if you have autopilot FSD, <laughs> please, please, please <laughs> use it as the fine print says, and, you know, be careful out there. That is a great way to end this. <laughs> Thank you guys so much. Um, Brian. Uh, yes. Uh, thank Emil, uh, at ePro. Um, you're going to be healing, hearing more from Emil, uh, soon, uh, for things that we'll announce soon. Uh, thank you, Julia Alexander. Uh, her newsletter is musings on the mouse, which is her newsletter, mostly about Disney, but also all the streaming stuff. Um, Laura, thank you so much, Chris. Thank you so much. Thanks everyone. Thanks guys for listening. Thank you. I'll publish it soon. Thank you. Ciao.